Rising Giants Network. Damage was done and Hussein will never be here. So I have only one choice is to forgive you. Your design was to divide, but the public's response was to stand with the people of their community. You failed. I mean, you can never move on, but you move forward. What I can say is that it is clear that this is one of New Zealand's darkest days. Imagine you were born in a beautiful and peaceful place that is then destroyed by war, that you must flee with your family, and then you land in a somewhat old-fashioned but kind country in the middle of nowhere where nothing ever really happens. And then the pain and danger and violence that you have fled ambushes you here in this new place. What does that do to you? How do you recover from that? How do you deal with your grief and loss when the place that offered you safety is not safe anymore? I'm Ashley Stewart, and from the Rising Giants Network, this is Our Darkest Day, examining the aftermath of the 2019 Christchurch terror attacks. I've spent the last two years speaking with some of the people most affected by this horrific crime. And in this podcast, I have the privilege of introducing you to them. This is the story of that day and the aftermath, told in their words. This podcast isn't for sensitive ears or for children. If it's starting to feel like too much, just switch it off. In the last episode, we explored what it's like being Muslim in a country like New Zealand and how discrimination can often come in many forms. We heard how racism existed both before and after the attacks and how Christchurch authorities are trying to address that. In this episode, a nation waits with bated breath as the trial of the Christchurch terrorist begins and survivors and their families struggle to deal with the stress of the trial, compounding the trauma and the grief that they're already dealing with. Episode 6, The Healing Process. Over the past two years, Jenna Azat tried to find peace in many ways for the murder of her son. First, she tried to find it in her homeland, Iraq, six months after the attacks. Her sister had come to Christchurch to visit and to support her, and both of them had travelled back to Mosul together. But it didn't go as planned, and Jana didn't get her peace. Mosul was different to what she remembered. It was mostly destroyed. Her childhood home had been trashed. Her parents' graves were blown to bits. A video she posted on Facebook shows her on her knees in the cemetery, sobbing. And I stayed four months there. Um, I was uh, looking for my grief there. I was looking for something missing that I was dreaming to have it in Iraq. But my comfort. Comfort. But I didn't. I'll tell you why. Um, The people there, they don't have that knowledge or they can't put themselves in my shoes. Uh, They try to talk to me in other subjects rather than talking about the attack or about Hussein. In the meantime, I need to talk about my son. I need to unload. But they thought that they were um, 
leading me to another uh, jockey uh, staff to oh see this one go to this one plus because i'm uh, very well known in iraq and mosul everybody in the street when they saw me oh madam you are the mother of shaheed you are the calligraph jannah can we take selfie can we take selfie so selfies okay i give them this opportunity um uh, also the media in mosul oh my god it's too it was too much but i allow them it's just because they need to so my needs were kept inside my uh, heart but their needs were given from me i gave them their need but one of the hardest things for her to see was the state of her family home Jana remembers it as a grand mansion, a sign of a prosperous and well-off family. But when ISIS entered Mosul in 2014, Jana's sister fled. The Islamic State seized their home. Oh my God, it was a palace. It was a palace, but it was destroyed from inside. I mean, every single things were destroyed. The windows, uh, uh, stealing the tabs, stealing that so it's not functioning i mean it's not for uh, it's not habitable yeah it's yeah yeah so i took a lot of photos the garden is is jungle it's uh, our house was uh, a 1200 square meter so oh it's my destroyed by ISIS. destroyed by us yeah 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 because my sister left uh, the house uh, once isis enter uh, mosul so ISIS, uh, every uh, empty home, they occupied it and they make it, uh, they make it like a central a center for them. Yeah, so it was uh, uh, dirty, and because of the rain and the humidity and the uh, windows were um, uh, broken, so all the uh, like the moisture, the moisture, lichens. Uh, the greenish stuff in the carpets, in the wall. Oh my God, it needs to be burned. The house needs to be burned rather than demolished. There was more to come though. She found out her family land had been effectively stolen. Uh, I extend my staying because um, I faced another problem. I went into another direction that some of my relatives they never think that one day I will go to Iraq and they stole my, um, some of my inheritance, land. And, oh my God, I discovered that they have to pay me. I didn't, I didn't uh, give them the power of attorney or authority to, to sell uh, lands that I have from my parents. So I entered in completely another story another direction fighting in the court with the judges with uh, the people with the friends that they were helping me and fortunately i succeeded and so jana returned to christchurch somehow more broken than she'd left her family was shocked at the sight of her by the time my mom came back she was it's as if somebody got a straw and sucked all the energy out of her. She was so emotionally exhausted. Like she was, she was talking to you, but you can feel that she was very exhausted. Um, 
And I couldn't believe, and you know, she you had to go to courts over there and police and whatever, and you had to do the same thing for a different matter here. So it was very yeah. hard, very tough for you. And my, I, I need to tell her about the butter. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, tell <laughs> my, her. My, my dad, as soon as... As soon as he saw the state of my mom, he told me to go to the supermarket and get my mom 100% butter so that we can feed her some butter. <laughs> yeah, I was like a skeleton. Yeah. yeah. But there was one positive side effect. She got to feel that feeling many of us have upon returning to New Zealand after some time away. You were, and the moment you landed, you're like, oh my God, I'm home. Uh, yeah, oh my God, I'm <laughs> home. And then when I entered the... Uh, uh, my house, I felt, oh, this is my uh, home. This is really, really my home. New Zealand is my home. But still, Jana couldn't move forward. After Hussein died, she'd stopped doing her calligraphy and wasn't sure if she would ever do it again. Adding to her worries was the fact that the terrorist had entered a not guilty plea to the 51 charges of murder, 40 charges of attempted murder, and one charge of engaging in a terrorism act, meaning a potentially lengthy trial and prolonging the nightmare for the victims. But then, on March 26, 2020, the terrorist did a complete U-turn, entering a guilty plea, almost three months out from his trial date. Jana was ecstatic. Dressed all in white, she took an iPad with her murdered son's face displayed on it in one hand, and a phone blaring music from it in the other. And she danced. A video of her like this, swaying from side to side outside her front door with both devices atop her head, was posted on her Facebook page. But it still wasn't closure. His sentencing, and the first time she would see him face to face, was still yet to come. Adib Sami returned to work in Alain to a hero's welcome. His workplace put up a huge banner of his face on his office door to welcome him home. It's still up on his door even now. He's still as jolly as ever. But even after a year, when I catch up with him over another feast courtesy of Sana in Alain, he's struggling. He had to return to New Zealand for an operation to remove his colostomy bag and reattach his colon months ago. But he's still struggling to regain his fitness and to move on from what happened. He remembers it all mostly when he's washing and sees the scars on his body. Every day, every day, every day, whenever I take a shower, I will remember that day, of course. (laughs) It will never, believe me, Ashley, that day will, you know, you have days in your life, you will never forget it. Any, any, anyone... Uh, even if ask uh, even you, you have some days you will never, uh, because it affected you deeply, so you will never forget it. Uh, and that day, one of the few days, I will never uh, leave or will forget the details what happened from from sunrise till, till, the, till today. Adib lost six close friends that day. He says one of the hardest parts was seeing them removed from a WhatsApp group of his friends. But somehow, he can still laugh about it all. In all of our conversations over the past two years, that humour has never disappeared. He laughs about the five months he was off work due to his injuries, cracks jokes at the memory of being inside the mosque, telling his son Ali to look after the family 
because that's what they say in the movies. He jokes that he left Iraq only to be shot in New Zealand. The rest of the family indulge him. Sana laughs when she remembers fainting on the side of the road in Christchurch when she'd heard the news her husband had been taken to hospital. She's not convinced the media pictures of her during the episode were entirely flattering. Adib says humour is his and his family's coping mechanism. You know, even I made a first joke after the shot with Ali, my son, when I, when I told him, uh, take care of your mother and, uh, and uh, brothers and sisters. And he said, Dad, you are okay. Why you say like this? I told him, no, you should say it like this as like a movie. <laughs> so he said, oh, oh dear, you are kidding. <laughs> and you are, you are kidding. So to be honest, when you live in Iraq and you went for two wars, survive from all this, you, you will be tough enough to, to, to just, uh, I even, uh, you know, I, when uh, Prince Williams, I met him in the mosque, and he asked me, you need maybe more than a year mentally to be okay. I told him, no, I will not need that time. And then he said, why? You say like this. I told him I'm from Iraq. He said, okay, now I understand. <laughs> so so I, I went a lot from through my life, you know. And I saw a big events a lot. Uh, you have to be brave to pass this. You have to go over it. Although you cannot stop thinking about it, but you have to go over it. You, you, I, I even advise my friends there in Christchurch, uh, don't continue focusing only what happened. Move on and try to live uh, your life again. Okay, think about your losses, but think what you uh, positively what you can get, what you can get from from what happened to 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 move forward. Physically, what remains of that day for Adib is two large scars that dissect his abdomen one running 35 centimetres vertically, and one horizontal that measures about 10 centimetres from the colostomy bag. And then there's the leftover shrapnel embedded in his hip. He still has to carry a special letter to inform airport staff that the metal is inside him, not on him. After 528 long days, Jana Azat finally gets to feel some kind of peace. It's August 24th, 2020, a Monday, and it's the first day of the terrorist sentencing at the Christchurch High Court. It's the first time Jana has come face to face with the man who murdered her son. Jana is almost unrecognizable now, a shadow of her former self. She's lost a huge amount of weight. Her face is gaunt. She's reliant on anti-anxiety medication and antidepressants. She's just asked her GP to triple her sleeping pill dosage. Jana is riddled with anxiety as she sits beside Hazem and Aya in the courtroom. She hasn't slept. The terrorist walks into the room, dressed in grey prison clothes, and takes a seat in the dock. 
He's surrounded by three police officers. He stares blankly towards where the survivors and victims' families are sitting. Jana suddenly feels nauseous and has trouble breathing. She suffers something like a panic attack and has to rush out the back to pop a couple of pills and recover. The victim impact statements are read one after the other. Each one seems insurmountable, inconceivable, and then comes another equally as heart-wrenching. The terrorist says nothing. He's fired his lawyers and is representing himself. He's already told the judge he won't be saying anything today. And then it's Jana's turn to speak. She speaks of her heartbreak and the loss of her shaheed. At the end, her paper crumpled in her hand. She turns to look the terrorist straight in the eye. I decided to forgive you, Mr. Tarrant, because I don't have hate. I don't have revenge. And in our Muslim faith, we say, Al-Afu and Al-Maqdira. It means that if we are able to forgive, forgive. It's, I forgive you. Damage was done, and Hussein will never be here. So I have only one choice, is to forgive you. Listening back to her words from that day, six months later, Jana still feels proud. She says she was just overcome by a feeling of power. She hadn't rehearsed the words. They'd just come to her in the moment. In the court, it's uh, the feeling inside the court for me and, uh, and also uh, comparing to the court that I was in Iraq, it's completely mm. different, okay? So I was confused, but uh, then uh, I felt everybody is, is uh, uh, assigned for us. Uh, this is our day. Uh, everybody is serving us. So it was, so I have to show my personality, my real personality. I have to show a respect rather than to show my anger. Uh, I have to respect the judge, the, uh, the other people. And uh, so that's why I decided to be very, the maximum um, a stage of politeness. So when I say his name, the killer name, I said, I decided to forgive you, Mr. Tarrant. So there is a Mr. before his name. So it's kind of um, to um, uh, respect myself first and to respect the judge and respect the others. So it's like I did something um, totally different than what the other people did. They have the right to. They have the right to shout at him. They have. They lost their beloved, but everybody behaves different. And it somehow, it somehow, um, it was so powerful that it affected so many people, mm. and even affected the terrorist himself. Um, that uh, we got word from one of the guards. I yeah, think, yeah, yeah. He came specially to came me. He came and sought my mom out and said, "By the way, I've been observing the terrorist all day long." He's never had a reaction to any of the impact statements, but for your one, 
his thumb was near his eye and it was as almost as he was wiping a tear. He got teary eye. I know he's going to uh, be the rest of his life in the in the prison. I know that. So I give him a lesson to give him some humanity. He didn't. He showed us um, the opposite of the humanity. No compassion. Yeah. Um, by killing. Oh, so by he killing. Showed, he showed being. He was very inhumane. Inhumane. Mm. So I showed him the humanity. It's a lesson for him. Plus, me in my in my belief that we have to forgive. It's. After when I forgive him, I felt uh, at peace. At you, peace. You feel I, at I peace. feel peace. The statements continued over the next three days. Ahad Nabi, son of Muhammad Daoud Nabi, who we heard had greeted the terrorist at the door saying, Hello, brother, wore a New Zealand Warriors rugby league jersey as he told the small, thin man that he was the trash of society and that his dead father would have snapped him in half. Nathan Smith recounted holding a three-year-old boy in his arms, praying he was alive. He was not. Smith, who converted to Islam nine years ago, spoke of being white, Muslim, and proud. Many others spoke of the Muslim community being brought closer together, rather than torn apart, as the terrorist had wanted. Wasim al-Sati greets the courtroom by saying, Good afternoon to everyone, except you to the man who shot him and his daughter multiple times. He says that he survived because the terrorists didn't know how to use a gun. Laughter rippled across the courtroom. As much as he tried to look strong for his beliefs and for his white supremacist ideology, he was absolutely the weakest person I have ever seen in my life. And he tried to hide behind a smile and he was he was hopeless he, i can't see that in his eyes that he tried to look as strong as he can but he absolutely was not and he couldn't show because he, he came to a conclusion though i have studied his body language through all the sentencing literally study his body language and he's suffering so much but he doesn't want to lose his eagle he couldn't stand and apologize. He, he, he just couldn't do any of that. When I speak to Wasim again for this podcast, he asks that we don't speak about the attacks. He hates remembering that day. In the last 18 months, Wasim has had 11 surgeries. His daughter, 16. He's dealing with enough right now between recovering, running a business and trying to provide for his family and just wants to move forward. I want to forget about it. I, I really badly want to forget about it. How I get shot, how my daughter gets shot, what have happened that day. And, and um, it's not a pleasant to keep disgusted, to be honest. She was brain damaged, struggling to see, walk and talk in the weeks after the attacks. While she's since regained some of her speech, in English and Arabic, partial eyesight and movement, she has a long way to go. And because she didn't see the shooter that day, she sometimes still blames her father for her injuries. All she saw at the time was her father picking her up and throwing her on the ground. She didn't know that all he was doing was trying to protect her. 
a good recovery, but it's not good enough. She she see a little bit, which is good. She start understanding a little bit, but she still go to a mood that she shut down herself again. The brain injury injury that she had, it's it's quite severe. So sometimes she will shut down herself. She she will wouldn't talk to anybody. And what's what's amazed me that she actually know what if ha- what have exactly happened, and she remember it completely. She remember how we got shot and she remember as well me lift her up and she remember all that. And uh, for a while she was, she thought that I'm the one who actually got her injured. She was blaming me. And that was, that was a very tough year, to be honest, for me that, that uh, but she still forget that it wasn't my fault and sometimes remember it, so. She, between believing and not believing what have, ha- what have happened. After the attack, Wasim lost his job due to the care needed for his youngest child. But he's since opened his own small barber shop in a mobile truck called Wass's Barbers. He's in the process of opening a second truck. But despite the expansion, Wasim says he's still struggling. His injuries mean full workdays are almost impossible. His walking stick doesn't help. I'll be standing cutting here and all of a sudden my leg will go to sleep and I fall off. I have bruising my arms, bruising my hands, bruising my shoulders from falling off. And and it's painful and my doctor's always telling me don't work and just keep the stick with you. But I'm, I'm, I'm just sick of that. I want to do anything else than just stay in pain. Wasim is also struggling to keep himself afloat financially. He says his benefit from New Zealand's Accident Compensation Corporation isn't enough and was based on his earnings from a year he wasn't making as much money. It was also before they'd moved into a bigger house that cost them double in rent. The contribution from victim support of donations from around the world, which was split between the victims and amounted to $50,000 each for him and his daughter, is already well on the way to being spent. $100,000 for two injured in one family with all the expenses for two years. How long they can have lost my house rent? It's $52,000 with two years. And the other two years as well, we have spent, I have spent all my daughter money that I am really angry about it, that I have used her money to survive, to keep the family surviving, but I can't do anything about it. It's her money. And the surgeries and hospital costs are not yet over either. I have one to two surgery, depends on on the nerve and the bone and the healing of the bone. Um, And because of the screws that I have in my hip and these screws is causing me so much pain. They have given me the strongest painkiller, but I have stopped it all because I just can't live. And And this medication, it just manipulated my brain. And Ellen, because of the bullet that she got, one of the bullets she got hit in her toe, that it's ruined her foot, and they haven't done anything about it yet, and it's still nothing happened about it yet. So that's why she still have surgery to go to because they was waiting for her to get a little bit better in some parts of her body to be able to do the surgery on her foot. It's really hard. It's really hard. My wife was studied to work, and now she can't work. And even we was, I'm not telling you that before March 15, we was planning to be a millionaires. 
but we was just want to live our life normally to buy a house to have you know to be to be normal now we below the normal Adib Kanafa, the surgeon who operated on Wasim's daughter on March 15th and saved her life, didn't attend the sentencing. He finds it difficult to put into words how the shooting has affected him long term. I think you you can look at it from from two from two ways. As a surgeon, we we tend to see you tend to see a, a lot of trauma, so you, you tend to recover from it. But the other half of me, which is as as a human, as a father, you know, as 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 a Muslim, you, I have to admit that although you can pretend you're strong, but I think this extreme is something difficult to um, to recover from it. I, th- I think it'll always be there. You'll always talk about it to your family. You always talk about it. I think we will never ever uh, recover from this. Uh, I think it is something that is just tattooed in in your memories. It'll always, it'll always be be there, and so you'll always wonder why it happened and why such a, a human would do that to another human. Um, you would possibly learn how to live with it, but I don't think I will ever forget it. Um, I sometimes still, you know, even my colleagues still remind me about it, and uh, some of them are. Um, appreciative of what I've done on the days, a, a colleague of mine wrote a, wrote a, a poem around, uh, about it. The reality, I think, will always live with us till um, till the last day on the earth. In total, ninety survivors and family members told the judge about the pain and aftermath of the attacks. They told him about businesses lost due to debilitating injuries, missed birthdays and milestones, and promising lives cut short. Many told Justice Cameron Manda to hand down the maximum available sentence, life in prison, without the possibility of parole. People called the terrorist a monster, a coward, a rat, read verses from the Quran or addressed him in Arabic. Abdi Ibrahim flew back from Perth to attend the sentencing with his father and two brothers, but ended up not reading his prepared statement because he didn't feel comfortable. If he did read it, it would have gone something a little like this. Every day I think about it, nothing has changed, but there's nothing you can do. All you could do is spread uh, awareness, just like what I'm doing right now. It's just to educate people as well, because my legacy I want to leave behind is to make a difference and to inspire people, because this could happen to anyone. And I always had that uh, assumption Whenever I see bad news, oh, that's uh, that country happening, that's that country happening. But I would, I think most people would never had it in their mind thought to happen in our soil in New Zealand. Yeah, I guess when you go through this experience, your life changes and you kind of have your guard up everywhere you go. And I know most people won't, will say to you that that's not healthy living to have, but uh you just got to do the best you can. So every every time I go to the mosque, I'm constantly checking the entry and the exit. After three days in court, on August 27th, the terrorist was sentenced. Justice Cameron Manda's words that day were extraordinary, and Jana recalls them reverberating around the courtroom. Here's part of Justice Manda's speech from that day. Your design was to divide but the public's response was to stand with the people of their community, with their fellow New Zealanders, 
to demonstrate their unqualified repudiation of your hateful agenda. You failed. Then came the sentence. Life in prison without parole. The courtroom erupted. Outside court, there were scenes of jubilation. Many cried, many hugged. Some sang the New Zealand national anthem or the New Zealand folk song, Tutera Mai Naiwi. After celebrating outside court with the other victims, Jana, Hazem and Aya went out to Nando's to celebrate. Only they weren't alone. 20 other families showed up with the same idea. They pushed a bunch of tables together to eat. They admit it was silly because of the pandemic. But this was more important just for the moment. Jana finally felt peace. Adib watched the sentencing via video link from Alain, wearing a t-shirt with CHCH on it, the acronym for Christchurch. He was in New Zealand just prior to the court date, but decided not to stay. He believed in the justice system in the country and was almost certain the terrorist would get the maximum penalty. He worried he would see the man face to face and feel sorry for him. He worried about being around so many grieving family members when he was one of the lucky ones. But despite his debilitating injuries and the memories of his dying friends staying with him every day, he, like most of the victims' families I spoke to over the past two years, feels no hate towards the shooter. I never care about him because this guy, uh, I'm sure he, he uh, unfortunately, he misused him. Maybe, maybe, maybe something wrong with, uh, with his uh, friends, families, something happened to this guy because impossible, a normal guy can do this. No way no matter what hate you have. Because the guy, he, he, you know, that when they ask him, uh, 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 what do you regret? He said, I didn't burn them. So, so, so this guy is full of hate. I never, I never expect, by the way, to see somebody like this. Uh, for, for me, I never, I never, uh, kept any hate in my heart against anyone and for that this this guy i feel sorry about him not uh, not hate him because uh, he lost he lost his life what's the meaning to to what he did well just give me a benefit what he gained from from what he did he he destroyed uh, a hundred around 100 families for uh, nothing what what he get i don't know what what uh, when he when the guy he, he think for a while now in prison what he what he will say to himself what he achieve what's the plan what's the family he make what's so i will never hate him but i will feel sorry about him and if I have a chance to see him, I just want to ask him why you did that. 
even my grandfather did something to your grandfather back before 400 years as as his uh, ideology said uh, why you, why why you blame me why i have to pay why i have to pay something i didn't do it my grand grandfather did it i i i, I will not say that uh, uh the, the the ideology he's is talking about that muslim uh, entered europe and did something wrong okay maybe this is correct i'm not defending that but why i why i should pay why i have to 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 penalize for something i didn't do it i will accept him as a human he has equal rights like others uh, i have to to just lead him to the way who 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 solve the the hate from his, or take the hate from his heart so 2 years later after such a tragic event has Christchurch changed is it more inclusive do people of all cultures and religions feel accepted i speak to Christchurch mayor Leanne Dalziel about this again towards the end of 2020. She says yes and no. Yeah, I think this has been an unusual year because of uh, COVID-19. And uh, we were to come together to uh, commemorate the events of March 15 and, and to reflect on the significance of the response of the city and the country and its impact that it had on the response from around the world. Uh, you know, we were due to, to come together for that purpose in March, but of course we were in lockdown, so that didn't happen. And so as a result, um, well, we were heading into lockdown at the time. So, uh, and I, so I think that as a result, there will be um, a really strong desire to come together uh, next year uh, in order to commemorate that but also, again, to focus on what it is that we can take from the response. Because I think everyone that I've spoken to, both within the Muslim community and beyond the Muslim community, there is this real sense that it was the response that represents the value of who we are and the value that we place on our relationships with each other. That's that's the truth of the the, 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 well, that's the moment of truth. That's the essence of who we are. And that, to me, uh, will uh, be commemorated next year. I believe that that will then result in an ongoing commitment to how do we um, turn that into a, uh, you know, again, a reflection on who we are as a people as part of our everyday um way of life. And I think there's been a lot of signs of that being a commitment that's shared uh, well beyond the Muslim community. In the wake of the attacks, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern commissioned a report by New Zealand's highest level of inquiry into why and how the massacre took place and whether it could have been prevented. In December 2020, that report was finally released after 20 months of consultation. The findings were jarring. 
the 792-page report by the Royal Commission of Inquiry concluded that the country's national security agencies spent an inappropriate amount of time focusing on the potential threat of Islamic terrorists in the months leading up to the attack. The commission also criticised lenient gun laws, misguided counterterrorism efforts by fragile intelligence agencies and ineffective leadership leading up to the attack. However, despite all of this, the report concluded that there was no plausible way the terrorists' plans could have been detected by New Zealand's government agencies, except by chance. Prime Minister Ardern immediately agreed to all 44 recommendations, including a number of changes to New Zealand's counter-terrorism laws, criminalising hate speech, and establishing a new ministry for ethnic communities. She also apologised on behalf of the government. But not everyone was satisfied with the outcome. The Islamic Women's Council of New Zealand said justice hadn't been served, that questions raised by them had been ignored, and that there had been an inappropriate concentration of resources towards Islamic terrorism. Mia Delziel says she found the report very hard reading. Even still, Delziel still believes Christchurch could help pave the way for healing in such a time of division. 18 months ago, she spoke about the city being the antidote. So does she still believe it now? I do think that we can be the catalyst for change that we want to see in the world. And the Prime Minister herself, when she spoke at the Remembrance Service last year, she said that what what 15 March had proved is that we weren't immune from this virus. And, you know, the irony this year is the virus um, is a different virus. But so, so we're not immune from the virus that is, that is caused by hate. Uh, but we are potentially able to be the place uh, that is able to um, discover the cure. And it is very much that desire that really drives me into believing that we can uh, find the antidote for hate. Uh, and that, to me, is a really powerful statement on the role that our city and our nation can uh, provide on the world stage. And that, that's, a, that's, I guess, a, a, a wish that I have. Uh, but I believe it would be, it would be an appropriate um, tribute to those whose lives were so tragically lost and those who were so severely injured uh, on that day that we were able to stand up in the world and say we can be a better place. If you think about the actions and what sparked them, they were driven from, from hate and a desire to inspire further acts of violence. And all of that was re- rejected. As a city uh, and as a nation, we embraced uh, peace, love, compassion, Uh, And we heard from the Muslim community itself the most powerful statements of forgiveness, which are the basis for being able to uh, relate to each other on a very uh, deep level that simply wouldn't be possible otherwise. So I think all of the ingredients were to be found in the collective response, and that to me is what your antidote comes from. Months have passed since then, 
Adib is still in Alain. Hamza got married in Christchurch in September 2020, despite COVID raging outside the country. Adib and Sana spent two weeks in a hotel room and managed isolation to be there. A picture from that day shows the bride in a lace wedding gown, her hair out in waves and a tiara atop her head, sitting with her new husband and surrounded by her beaming family. Hamza is now pregnant with her first baby. Her brother Abdullah, Adib's oldest son, is engaged now too. Adib is now ready to heed his calling. He's planning on moving back to Christchurch in two years, max. His future is there, and a nice retirement surrounded by kids and grandkids. Jana, on the other hand, plans to leave. She has become an avid Labour supporter and campaigner after the impressive actions of Prime Minister Ardern and the support provided by her local MP in the wake of the tragedy. Dressed in a red T-shirt, with the Labour slogan splashed across the front, she spent early October delivering pamphlets around her neighbourhood. On election night, she attended her local MP's function and cheered alongside the rest of the room as the party won in a landslide. She viewed this as a turning point, as a way of reintegrating into society and finally moving on. But the memories linger in Christchurch, which is why Jana and Hazem are building a house in Auckland now. In Auckland, they can start fresh. They can visit Hussein in Christchurch from time to time, but not be ruled by the painful events of his death. She thinks she might be able to start doing calligraphy again now. She's getting there, currently working on some cross-stitch Arabic art for a t-shirt. When she finally picks up a brush again, she will paint Hussein's name. Nowadays, we are excited to of moving to build a new house in Auckland and to maybe to have a new friends, a new atmosphere. Uh, the weather is... Um, warmer than Christchurch but I'm I'm still afraid of uh, having a homesick because I'm I love Christchurch I'm still loving Christchurch um so I don't know I don't know so I said to Hazem um to my husband is to at least for one year not to sell our house in Christchurch to see myself first if I'm going to adapt to another city, to another country. And I don't know because here is everything is handy. Um, I know that every petrol station, I know the guy who's, uh, um, uh, who's uh, on the counter. I, I know that, uh, uh, you know, it's like a small community. I know everybody. I know them. Yeah, so I will miss that. But um, I don't know what... I, I have no idea. I'm, I have a weak concern, but maybe when the when we will have the new house, maybe it will change. I have no idea. Yeah, but for Hazem and Aya, they are very optimistic. We were anyway going to look into moving cities anyway before March 15, but yeah. um, I think this gave us the push to, to, to cement the idea of of moving. Mm-hmm. Very excited. I mean, you can never move on, but you you move forward. That's the thing. So you, you take a brief with you and you move forward. This was the last episode of Our Darkest Day. 
I want to thank everyone who contributed to this podcast, especially the victims' families and the survivors, who were so open and courageous in telling their stories. Our Darkest Day is a Rising Giants Network production. It was written by myself, Ashley Stewart. It was produced by Bashar Najjar and Basil Abtawi, with script and story consultation by Popsock Media in New Zealand. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Deezer, Spotify, Angami, or wherever you get your podcasts. Powerful is the Cox Network. So powerful that one day the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply.